Hey everyone, this is Chad. Thanks for taking time to listen to my latest sermon. I want to give you a quick update before the sermon plays. At Creekside, we just had our annual business meeting. This is a meeting where we talk about budget, share vision, and celebrate the work of God in the last year. And one of the things we celebrated this year is that our sermon podcast listens went from somewhere around 2,000 to over 15,500. I want to publicly just say thanks to God for that. And I want to say thank you for listening. We put these sermons online for you, and it's good to know that you're listening, and I hope that you are being impacted. We would love for this upward trend of sermon podcast listens to continue, and you can help with that in four ways. First, keep listening. And second, if you listen to this on a podcast host, please subscribe. Also, if you would leave us a rating or review, that would help our sermons be heard by more people. And finally, if you find any of these sermons really valuable and think that somebody else might benefit from them, please share them. We would really appreciate you doing those things. One last thing, as always, if you find this sermon particularly helpful, we would love to know about it. If you do, please email us at respond at creekside.me. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that this sermon will help you learn and live more fully for Jesus. When I was in high school, I uh, spent my junior year kind of as the whipping boy of my high school basketball team. And uh, it didn't seem to matter what I did and what other people did. I seemed to be the one that uh, felt the wrath of, of my high school basketball coach. And I remember this one practice specifically. Um, kid on my team was, was high, uh, and, like on marijuana, not on jumping. Um, and uh, he's, he's skipping around. I shouldn't laugh, but he's skipping around in the backcourt, throwing the ball up and catching it and having a wee old time. And he's just uh, enjoying himself. And, and, and he throws a ball from like there to there on this court uh, to me. And he throws it like so high over my head. And, and my coach just turns his attention to me and starts yelling at me for not catching the ball. And I remember uh, this person who was high, uh, who I had a, a fairly good relationship with, uh, just as our coach turned his back, him looking at me with a big old smile on his face. Like, I know I threw it overhead. You knew, know I threw it over your head, but you got yelled at anyway. And uh, it got frustrating over time. I can laugh about it now to know that no matter how hard uh, I try to do things, or even, frankly, how well I did things, it, it seemed like the wrath of my coach was going to come at me instead of other people. And uh, to tell you why, I guess, because I found out later, my senior year, I had had enough and was like, this, this isn't happening anymore. And, and I had a two-hour conversation with my coach where he's like, yeah, I can yell at you and you're not going to react negatively. And so I just take it out on you. Uh, I was like, oh, so at least we're on the same page now, you know? Um, and so we moved on. And, and actually, my relationship with that coach is, is uh, great. I still feel uh, very close to him um, because of that conversation. But I think that we feel a little bit like this in our country today. If, if we're people 
specifically Christians, but if we're people who are, are trying to live lives that are, you know, morally good, even if that doesn't mean the same thing to you as it does to me, if we're trying to live lives that are, are morally good, that, uh, that are beneficial to our society, that, uh, that make the world a better place, it, it almost seems as though we've come to a place where, where we are kind of shoved to the side and maybe made fun of and, and kind of just kicked to the curb as people who aren't cool or aren't going to make a difference or, you know, aren't uh, going to help our society move forward. It seems a little backwards at times, right? And I think, especially for those of us who are Christians, that, that, we, that we are frustrated. I think, I think if you're a Christian, you're frustrated because you're looking at yourself and you're saying, look, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I, I do a lot of stuff that's wrong or bad and, and I make tons of mistakes. Not even mistakes, I just do things that are wrong, right? Um, but I'm really trying and yet it seems like everybody is looking at Christians saying, I can't believe how bad you are and, and you know your neighbors get weird when you bring up church and, and, and you're looking around, and I, this is maybe most to the point, you're looking around and you're saying, I am trying to live a good life, but I'm watching our country reject the morality that for a long time it has had, the morality that I believe is from God, and it seems like it's making our country worse and worse to the point where, you know, your, your pastor, Chad, where he preached a sermon last week that said we may come to a place where, where our nation is, is judged quite severely and on a, on a mass grand scale. And it's like, so here I am trying to live for God, but here's our nation not, and it seems like things are going downhill I just, I, I just kind of stumbled upon this week, this, uh, I didn't read the article, I just read about the article, but uh, Teen Vogue, within the last six months or so, uh, Teen Vogue magazine, Teen, like for teenagers, right? Uh, they, they produced an article um, basically on, on why sodomy, and if you don't know what that is, look it up, because I'm not going to explain it to you, why sodomy uh, is is good and and how it can be better and it was a lengthy article for our teenagers Uh, this is why you should do it this is what it's like this is how you can do it better Uh, i'm on snapchat and uh, if you swipe right on snapchat there's a list of stories, and I don't know if you know this, but, but the Snapchat is, is really, really popular, like more popular than Facebook or Instagram or, or email for you people who are older, uh, you know, more popular than sending letters um, if you're even older, then uh, it's more popular than all of those forms of communication for people about the age range of 17 to 22. Uh, it, it is by far and away, it is, it is more popular. That is how our kids are communicating. And Snapchat's just so different than other social media networks. And uh, so you just start with your face. It's like you pull it up and there's your face. Um, but if you swipe right, it's a bunch of, I'm going to put this in quotes now, news stories. And it is incredible how morally filthy they are. I, I mean, it, it is shocking to think that 
hey, this is what teenagers are doing, and so here's what we're going to put in front of them. Uh, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I think it's left us in this place that really lines up with, with the book of Amos, which is the book we're going to look at in the Bible. Yes, that's a book in the Bible. If that, wait, what? Um, that's the book we're going to look at today. It's, it's left us in this place where we are, we are so similar, I think, to, to what's taking place in the book of Amos. And, uh, you know, we've seen in, in this series, and if you've been here, I've said this every time, but, but I started, I did this series like a year ago, and, and I decided it was important to bring back, and it's on these, these books in the Bible called the Minor Prophets, and they're not called that because they're unimportant. In fact, uh, the Jewish people who read them first would have called them really important, or read them uh, longest anyway. They would have called them really important. They're called the Minor Prophets because they're fairly short, um, and uh, some of them are, are shorter than others, but, but we've been looking at this at these minor prophets and they speak so incredibly into our culture today that it that it's it makes me like the bible better because i'm like wow if god could could have a book written down you know a long long time ago over 2000 years ago 2500 ish years ago if god could have a a letter written down then that speaks so clearly to me now and what I'm facing in modern day America, it's, it's incredible. And it makes me want to read the Bible and read it more and, and, and like it more and understand it better and all those things. And we've seen, I just want to kind of give you the repeat of what we've seen because I think, you know, it builds maybe to, to right now in this sermon in Amos and, and what happens there. We've seen that we can have hope despite suffering and we can have hope despite evil and we can have hope despite injustice and hope despite disappointment and hope despite unfaithfulness and hope despite tragedy and hope despite judgment and almost all of that in the Minor Prophets, if you were to go back and listen to the sermons, is driven by the thing that we can have hope despite that we'll see in the book of Amos, and that is hope despite immorality. Hope despite living in a country where the morality that we once knew, that we once held to, that God, we believe, has given to us, we can have hope despite it. And the book of Amos is just so fascinating to me because it's, it's just in line with, with what we're facing. And to read, like, like I said, like Hosea is just beautiful to read, at least the first three chapters. Amos is kind of, you know, it's kind of, like, it's okay. Like it's not like the one, I'm just emotional, you know, I'm feeling it. But when you think about the situation that he's writing to, it's like, wow, I feel that. So let me just, just give you the background about uh, Amos and, and why he shows up and, and writes. And he's, he's living in a time. He's actually one of the first minor prophets to write. We're covering him at the end of this series. But, but he's one of the first to write. And he's living in a time when Israel has become prosperous. Like the generations that are alive had, had never known before. Like the generations had not experienced all the way back into to the point where uh, there was a guy named Solomon who ruled over the land and then his dad was David. And I mean, they, they are like, 
They were like top reigning rulers in the history of the world, not just for Israel. I mean, they were rich and wealthy and the nation was prosperous and protected by God and things were great. And then the Jewish people, they made decisions and they had bad leaders and, and things went downhill and kind of back uphill and downhill and kind of back uphill. But, but they had never progressed to that point again. And, and when Amos writes his book, the nation is prosperous. The land has expanded again. They had taken over other lands. I mean, they are feeling really good about themselves. And so, and this is where it's going to be so familiar to you. So, in their country, in their land, like 95% of people just looked at their situation and said, I'm rich. I have whatever I want whenever I want it. I can have access to anything right now. Does this all sound familiar? You know, like I, I, I got what I want, people. And so I'm going to live however I want. And then as, as a byproduct of this, and I see this just around me all the time with, with people who label themselves Christians, but they're, they, they really, they don't follow Jesus at all. They don't care about God at all. And this is where I see this, and maybe you're one of these people. But it's like, hey, look how prosperous I am. Look at how much God loves me. Look at the country I live in. God will take care of me no matter what. And so that's like 95% of the people line up with, you know, like a high percentage of people in our country. Like if there's a God, then he'll take care of me. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. If there's a God, he will take care of me because look at how he has taken care of me. And then there's this other group of people they're living for God. They're doing their absolute best to, to, to live out their relationship with God, to be faithful to Him, to serve Him, to be obedient to Him, to, to follow His commands. They're doing their best to be the people that God has called them to be. And they're looking around and they're going, our country is so immoral that any plans, any promises that God has had for us have to be void now. There's no way that we're ever going to receive the blessings and the benefits of God that we thought we were going to have, that we thought we were going to obtain. Isn't that so familiar? I mean, isn't that just how, you know, you're on one of two sides, right? Either you're a Christian who's living for God and you, you think like, hey, we built this country on, on Christian morality and with some Christian foundations and I'm not a guy who believes in Christian nations. I believe in Christian people. So I'm not saying we're a Christian nation, but we all know like there was foundation and morality that was, that was from the Bible, from God's word and our founding fathers, they believed in the word of God for the most part and, and they they said, look, this is what we should shoot for and this is what we should be like. And in fact, I've learned that, that, our, that our, our foundations are in some ways built upon how the church looked because they're like, look at how the church has people of different walks of life and they come together and they, they can make decisions together and what can we add to our, our, our laws and our land that kind of make it look like that, to function like a church. And, and, and we know that, but now if we're Christians, we look around and we go, well, we're not doing anything for God anymore. I mean, just look at Snapchat or Teen Vogue. And I think a lot of us, we look, and, and I don't know if this is true. I can't make this claim as true, but I think that we feel it a lot. And we go, I think that we have, we've been a country that has been blessed by God because 
we were built upon these foundations. And because there was a respect of Christianity, even when people weren't Christians, and, and because there was a morality that at least kind of looked like God's morality, and, and I think a lot of people feel like, hey, we've been blessed because of this, and now we are looking at people, and I'm not even sure if I feel that way. I just know that people feel that way. It might be true, it might not. But we look at people that are, that are tearing at the morality of God, that are mocking Christians, that have rejected outright the things of God, that are writing articles that seem just absolutely uh, in the, in, to be in the face and, and, and contrary to what Christians have taught. And we're going, we are, we are going to lose the blessings that God has given us because of the immorality that exists in our country today. And Amos writes this book. First he gives a prophecy, but then he writes a book. And in Amos 1.1, and I like this part, it's just fun. It says, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam of Jehoash was king of Israel. It just sets it up for us, but what's so fascinating, what I really like about this, and it just I think it's important for you to hear, is that Amos is not a professional prophet or priest or ruler or pastor. I mean, he is a guy that we learn later in the book is doing two jobs, actually. He's shepherding and he's doing some landscaping. And, and that's who he is. And what we learn as this book goes on is that, that God shows up and he's like, hey, hey, I need you to go tell the people what I think about this immorality that exists in the country. That's a big job for a guy that's taking care of sheep and, and, and pruning some trees, right? I mean, this is an incredible thing. And not only that, and this took me a little while because I, it just surprised me. I was like, wait, what am I reading here? But actually, what's fascinating about Amos is that he lives in the southern part of Israel. Remember I said last week, if you were here, that the nation had split into two kingdoms, southern and northern, and he actually lives in the southern kingdom, 12 miles or so from Jerusalem. And God says, hey, I want you to go up north to the other kingdom, and I want you to tell them what I think about their immorality. That's not a very fun job, right? I mean, just the only kind of context that I have for what this would have looked like is if the South and the North had actually split in America and there was two nations and, and it was, you know, kind of fresh anyway and, and they didn't like each other very much and there was tension and God shows up and you're living in New York City and he's like, I want you to go to Southern Alabama. That's like the worst I could think of. I want you to go to Southern Alabama and I want you to tell them why their lives are immoral. And what I think about it. You'd be like, well, I'm a shepherd. I guess I should have put that the other way around. The southerner should have come to the north because he was a shepherd. The shepherd is like, I don't want to do that. But Amos does. And it's very important that he does. Because here we are, 2,500 years later, and we learn so much from this book. And and in verse 1-2... Right at the beginning, he says something that that for me is really important. Not that I don't believe it, but because we can forget it. And this is what it says. He said, he said, that's Amos, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. 
Now, the specifics of that are unimportant, but there's this theme in the book of Amos, and the theme is that God is, in fact, supreme. He is almighty. He is in control. He is ruling, and he's reigning, and he's got everything underneath him. Now, I say this is important because I think you feel like God's not doing anything, I think if you're a Christian who kind of is in the boat that I've subscribed already that's actually trying to live for God and, and, and looking around and going, wait, like, this is not going to work for very long because of these people's immorality, then, you're, then you need to be reminded that God is in control. God has not stopped working. God has not forgotten. God sees and he roars from Zion. He is supreme over all. Even our media, even our culture, God rules and reigns over it all. Now, if you're on the other side, and I think this is more to the point of Amos, and you're like, well, eh, I've been blessed. I have everything I want. God, you stay up there. You do your thing. You need to be reminded that God is absolutely supreme and he's in control and he is to be obeyed as such because as we see in the book of Amos for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, when his patience runs out, it's very bad for those who have forgotten his supremacy, who have forgotten that he is to be respected and served because he is the creator of all. He is almighty. And so Amos throughout, and I just picked one verse out to represent kind of this theme that comes up, but he's just like, look, people, you need to understand that you are not in control. God is absolutely in control. And then he launches just right in. I, I don't know what was said when he actually walked into the city and, and started to give this kind of uh, sermon when he started to give this prophecy because in the book, there's no like buildup. It's not like, hey, I'm Amos. I'm a shepherd from Tekoa. You know, it's like, here it is. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. There's this, this kind of... Uh, language thing that he does uh, that somebody has labeled xx1 and i don't know why they did that but but he says for three sins even four i will not relent and and it's as if he is saying hey for enough sins even more than enough sins i will not relent but i will punish you and then he lists these nations he says look there's been enough sin here there's been enough sin there there's been enough sin here and because of it and in a very specific way he says here is the punishment i'm going to bring it's not like a very vague thing, like, hey, I'm going to you know, hurt your land or whatever. He's like, Here, here's what I'm going to do to you. Because here's what God is going to do to you because of your sin. Your sin is enough. Now, let's just get this out there. This, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm hitting too close to home here. But, but for the Jewish people who hear the beginning of, of Amos' prophecy, they're like, Absolutely. This is right on. These nations are our enemies. It's actually feeding in to what they already believe. Well, I'm on God's side. Look how blessed I am. Of course God is going to take care of me and punish those other people. I mean, it's like God showing up and saying, because I've had enough of the sin in North Korea, I will punish them. Oh, yeah, of course. Because I've had enough sin and seen enough sin in Iran, I'm going to punish them. Absolutely, God. That makes total sense, of course. Because I've seen enough sin in Saudi Arabia, I'm going to punish them. Absolutely. Because I've seen enough sin in Russia, I'm going to punish them. Absolutely, for most people. You know, absolutely. Like, yes, God. And God goes on like this for about a chapter. Or Amos goes on on God's behalf for about a chapter. And then the whole thing flips and... and 
Amos 2, 4, and 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, it's one of the tribes, one of the uh, kingdoms of Israel, even for four I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Now this is where the people are going to be like, Time out, God. Look at how wealthy we are. Look at how prosperous we are. We're like no generation that has ever existed. We have it figured out. We're the intellectuals. We're the ones that have have built these great cities and expanded this great kingdom. I mean, God, look at how nice things are going. And and in fact, it's interesting in this book because the, the main enemy of the Israelites has actually subsided. It was the Assyrians. And Amos is gonna say in this book to them, like the Assyrians are gonna be a part of your punishment. And, and it's like they've gone way down like they're not they're, come on Assyria like they have bad leaders and, and I mean that used to be somebody we feared but not anymore are you kidding me like we're not going to fear them anymore and, and I mean come on God like, what are you talking about we're the great nation we're your great nation look at how blessed we are God says I I've had enough and I said last week, and I don't need to bring it back or hash it out again, but maybe, just maybe in our lifetimes, God will say, I've had enough. And then he lists these sins, and uh, it gives us a little, a little, it pulls back the curtain on what God is thinking about, you know, what a nation should look like, and I'm just not sure you're going to like them all, um, but this is kind of the idea, the feel, the flavor. I'm not going to read specific verses, but you can read the book of Amos, and, and you'll come to the same conclusion about you know, kind of the things that, that bother God in this country, where he's like, this is enough, like this is enough. I'm not going to relent because this is enough. Uh, so, for example, there was extreme wealth and poverty. There's a big deal in this book. God's looking down and he's like, there are the ultra rich and there are the ultra poor and something is wrong with this picture. This should not be happening. With a group of people who claim to like me and claim to live for me, there should not be these extremes on the wealthy and impoverished sides. The poor were being cheated and exploited. The wealthy did not care to recognize the sickness of society. I mean, that just hits really close to home, right? Like, everything's fine. I have plenty of money. You know, I mean, like, and that's how the wealthy are in almost every society think. But when God looks down at a nation that, that seems to want to be obedient, not want to be, they want to pretend that they like him, that they, they are worshipers in some sense of the word, and I'll talk about that in just a second, and, and there he's looking, he's going, well, you're, you have tons of poor and tons of wealthy, and it's just not right. Justice was a commodity to be purchased. Man, I, I just, how often do you see a rich person go to trial and go, yeah, they'll be fine, they're gonna get away with it. It's crazy to me. I'm just like, wow, that feels like our country. And he's writing, you know, 2,500 years ago to a, an Eastern culture that's really not like our country. The merchants were greedy and dishonest. There was religious arrogance. I mean, I see that in our churches, right? Like we're just so arrogant. And some churches, it's just like we're the only church, you know, and there's this arrogance. And 
And not only that, but there was an attempt to corrupt religious leaders. That doesn't really happen to me, but I actually was listening to a sermon by a, a mega church pastor where he said he gets phone calls of politicians who want to come in and be able to use this platform, this audience, in order to push their political agenda. And so this is not far from the truth. Nobody calls me and does that here, but, uh, but, uh, but that's a thing apparently that happens. Uh, there, uh, and then their religion was routine and mechanical and void of true faithfulness i mean they were going through the motions they were making sacrifices but then when they left their religious services their lives looked no different than everybody else's lives i mean this is this is like the problem right with the churches in america it's like you you show up not you personally but but we show up and we go through the motions and we do our thing and when we leave it's like we look exactly the same and this is what they're facing they were disrespecting the temple and, and now, I mean, the church is actually called the temple of God in the New Testament. And I look at how his church, God's church, is being disrespected by people in the church and by people out of the church. They were spiteful to the prophets. I mean, people who were speaking the words of God and the people were like, nope, 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 and we'll beat you up and we might even kill you. I mean, and, and then there was this incredible arrogance and they were serving other gods and they were ungrateful for the past work of God it's like yeah of course God did that for us look at who we are we're the blessed nation we're the chosen nation they were unfaithful to their agreement with God and they were completely self-satisfied we don't need you God you're just a part of our lives that makes us feel good but we have everything under control I mean, it just hits to me, I mean, and maybe I don't know how you feel or, you know, I think that, that when you read this, your political agendas will come into it, and I, I don't have a political agenda. Um, I only have a Christian agenda in, in my life, and if you know me well, you know that's true. I don't have a political agenda. Um, I have political beliefs, but not an agenda. Uh, but, but I don't know where it's going to fall with you, but I, I just want you to kind of just sit aside your political thoughts and how you think things should go, because I may agree with you or disagree with you. Amos may agree or disagree with you but he wants you to know about the morality that God has a problem with it's an arrogance that causes us to just reject the wills and the ways of God and it comes out in our treatment of the poor and in the justice system and it's it's completely self-satisfying And the book's purpose is to pronounce judgment against the northern kingdom's social injustices. This is a quote, moral degeneracy and spiritual apostasy. And in 2.10, God says this thing that's representative of so much he says in the book. And he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. And if you don't know the story, I mean, the Israelites were slaves in a land called Egypt and God does these miracles to bring them out and he, he does this other stuff for them and, and much of it's mentioned in the book. I mean, he chooses them to be his family and then he gives them freedom and then he provides for them while they wander around in a desert and he protects them from other nations who are really more powerful or more advanced than them apart from God and then he gives them his word through the prophets and through the laws and God looks down and I, I just, I think that, while it, the book sounds angry and God is ready to punish, I think if I could, just, I could just hear God's compassion and his hurt in this word, I brought you out of Egypt. I've taken care of you. 
And now your response is to say, look at how awesome we are and reject me. It doesn't make any sense. And I think we do this too. I'll just read you what I wrote. The people saw God's favor and instead of living for him, they assumed they'd always have his favor and they rejected him. And the book is written in such a way that we should see that that's stupid. It's stupid. It's like a, a, a job and you get this job and they pay you incredibly and, and they give you a, a long leash and they, they show you love in the workplace and when you mess up they offer you grace and they're cool about it and, and they're just like paying you way more than you deserve and, and they're treating you better than you know you deserve and, and you go, sweet, I'm going to rip off the company because they're not going to do anything to me anyway. That's stupid. And that is what we do to God. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for letting me live in this country. You know, thank you for all the blessings and the benefits that we have here. I'm not going to live for you. I'm going to live apart from you, reject you, and maybe I'll act like I like you on the weekends. God says, seek me and live in Amos 5.4. I mean, this is the cry of God's heart forever throughout all the generations, throughout all the centuries. Seek him and live. And we know that in the New Testament, if you've been around at all, you know this, this happens through Jesus, right? I mean, God looked, he literally looked down after writing this book. He said, man, I see a problem down there. Even if they live for me, they still have a problem with sin. And, and for eternity, they won't, they won't be able to, to live with me and they won't be able to worship me and they won't be able to be with me and they, they're destined for punishment. And so God came down in the person of Jesus. He died the most brutal spiritual death on a cross. And then he rose again to conquer the sin and death that has held us down forever. And God is still looking at you and me and he's saying, seek me and live. And so even in the midst of this book, we find where the hope lies. It lies in returning to God. Not saying, oh, I'll always be blessed. Look at all this stuff I have. It lies in saying, God, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm thankful that you've done so much for me. It lies in turning your eyes to Jesus and saying, Jesus, because of what you've done, I want to have a relationship with you and I want to build upon that relationship with you. I want to worship you and be obedient to you because I know how much I have in you and through you. And then he gives this warning in, in 5.18 and I think this warning is so important because it's so much like what I see around me. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. The day of the Lord is the day, and we've talked about this a couple times in this series, the days in history where God has dealt with punishment on a mass scale. And eventually there will be a final day of the Lord when we know that Jesus will return to earth. He will put some on his right and some on his left. Those who have given their lives to him who are Christians, true Christians, not just in word, but people that actually follow, love, live for Jesus. Those people will be taken into eternal glory and those who have not made a decision to love and live for Jesus will be taken into eternal punishment. Sin will be dealt with forever. And Amos looks at these people, he says, what are you doing? Why are you longing for the day of the Lord? 
Why are you so interested in when God will finally set things right? Because you're going to be on the wrong side of it. I read this book called End Times Now. It was this whole book about how talking about the end times, which means a lot of different things to a lot of people, but, but just for, so we're all kind of on a similar page, when, the, when Jesus will return and the world will kind of end as we know it. I mean, if you, it, the book was about how people are obsessed with this topic. How if you write a book about it, it will make you money. Now, the chapter that really talked about that was called Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T versus Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. It's like you're just going to make a lot of money and so people write a book. I, I think I could write a bestseller just saying, hey, God's coming back on this day. And, and I would be a liar and, you know, God would be mad at me and I'd be punished eternally. But, uh, but you know, then maybe people would call me for their political agendas. I don't know. <laughs> People are obsessed with thinking about this. And what Amos says is, is, why are you people so obsessed with this idea? Because you're going to be on the wrong side of it. You should be obsessed with the idea of seeking God so that you may live and you may have life even when I do return. Stop thinking about all the signs that point to when God will return and, stop, and start thinking about all that God has already done for you and start to live for him because of it. I might be preaching to the choir out here in the Northwest, but there are parts of our country where Christendom, the culture of Christianity still exists, where it's cool to be a Christian. Where culturally you don't watch football on Sundays, you watch, you go to church on Sundays. And there are people there that would love, that could say more about the end times than I can say. That are obsessed with thinking about it and talking about it and writing about it and listening to pastors that think about it. That are not going to be on the right side of it because they don't live for Jesus at all. And this warning, I think, is as real today as it was in the time of Amos. Stop thinking. I mean, you can think about the day of the Lord if you want to, but the bigger issue is, am I being faithful to God? Have I given my life to Jesus now? And then one of the most staggering statements in the Bible I didn't know was in here until I was studying this book, Amos 9, 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? That's mind-blowing. If you know anything about God's relationship to the Israelites, I mean, they're the chosen ones. They're the holy people. They're the royal priesthood. I mean, they're God's treasured possession, his family, his nation. I mean, and God says, look, if you're going to reject me, if you're not going to seek a right relationship with me, you are absolutely no different to me than the nation that calls themselves my enemy, that worships little idols made of stone, that rejects me outright. You're no different at all. This should be a convicting statement. Because in America, and you know this, right? There's this arrogance. And this arrogance may not be wrapped, masked, by religious language, but it often is. But it may not be. It's just this arrogance that says, look, I'm in America. It's gonna be okay. And what I hear in this, this one single verse is if you are rejecting God's ways and therefore you are immoral, 
You are no different being an American than you are being a North Korean, than you are being an Iranian, than you are being a Saudi Arabian, than you are being a Russian, than you are being any other nationality. If you reject God, you reject God. And the only result will be punishment, eternal punishment. If God will say it about the Israelites, he'll definitely say it about the Americans. You, America, are the same to me as every other nation when you choose to reject me. And you, American, are the same to me as every other person if you choose to reject me. Now, we know this. This is the good news. That if we do seek God and live, if we become Christians, if we live for God, if we're actively pursuing a relationship with God, then we're, we're so different. We're drawn into the family of God. We become his treasured possession and, and he makes an eternity for us and he's preparing a place for us, for crying out loud. That's what it says, he's preparing a place for us that will, that will be an eternal place of blessing and goodness. 9.8, he says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Someday eternal punishment is coming, final punishment is coming, mass punishment is coming. But not everybody will be destroyed. Someone said this, The God who is free to be the judge of Israel is also graciously free to be its savior. And that's what we see in Amos 9, 11 through 15. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You see, we find hope despite immorality. Because we see that God is sovereign. God is in control of all. And he will take, take care of the immorality that exists. He's going to punish. He's going to take care of it. Someday it will go away. But if you are part of the remnant, if you live for God, if you seek God and live, then you have this eternity to look forward to that is beyond anything you can imagine now. See, you can look around and go, I'm blessed and become arrogant and reject God and eventually have no more blessing but punishment. Or you can look around and say, God has done so much for me. I will seek him. I want to live. And then your eternal blessing will be even better. Hope despite immorality comes because God has offered us a way unto righteousness in the person of Jesus. And so I want to speak to two groups, this, the same two groups I started with this morning. If you are one of the arrogant who looks at your life and the blessings that you have and looks at the country that you live in and go, yeah, and go you know, hey, I'm okay. 
And in the end, and there's people that say this, this is not a hypothetical, in the end, God will make it okay for me. And so now you reject God and you reject the gospel story that I've already told that Jesus came and he died for your sins. You reject it because you go, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. It's going to be good. Look at how God loves me. I want to say to you this morning that you need to remove the arrogance and you need to seek God and live because for eight chapters in the book of Amos, he says, hey, if you don't, it's going to end badly for you. But if you will seek me, you will live and you will live in eternal blessing. And so don't be so arrogant that you can't live for God. But instead, humble yourself because of the grace that God has given you. And accept Jesus as your Savior. But to those in despair, which may represent a majority of people here today, to those of you in despair, know this, that God will punish sin. And when you look at things like Teen Vogue or Snapchat and you go, how is God letting this happen? Well, he's not. He may let it go on for a little while, but eventually he will put an end to it. And our children will not have to be influenced, subjected to those things anymore someday. God will punish sin and he will make things perfect for you you don't have to walk around saying, oh, this is terrible, I hate everything, look at how bad our country is going to be. You can live in joy. And I know it's hard sometimes when you turn on TV or Facebook or Snapchat or you just, when you see anything, when you see anything, right, when you see it all, it's very hard to be joyful. But what God says in this book is, look, you don't have to get caught up in the doom and gloom of it all because someday this will end. And everything will be perfect for you. You know why we have hope despite immorality? We have hope despite immorality because God is not like my high school basketball coach. We have hope despite immorality because God will ultimately judge fairly. And if you are on his side, you will have eternal blessing. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray that we would not be despaired that we would not live in despair, God, that we who are Christians, who are trying to live for you, who are trying to live out your morality, God, we would still have joy. God, we would have joy. We would have peace that transcends all understanding. We would have hope, God, because we know that you are going to make things right. And we know, God, that you are going to take us into an eternal dwelling where the good things, God, overflow. And so, Lord, for those of us that are looking around and just feeling frustrated by what we see, God, by what we hear, by what we know is taking place in our country, I pray, God, that we would be people of joy and hope because of the promises that you have made to us. But for those, Lord, who aren't living for you, who are arrogant, really. Whether, God, they call themselves Christians or not, it's not my concern because as you say in Amos, God, it's all the same to you. Whether people reject you while showing up to church on Sunday or reject you while saying mean things about Christianity is not important. But, God, if people reject you, I pray, God, the people that are rejecting you, God, I pray that, Lord, you would show them that it is you who have blessed them 
I pray, God, that if conviction is needed, that if sadness is needed, you would bring sadness and conviction so that they might return to you or come to you for the first time, God, that they might seek you and live. Lord, some of my friends, some of my family are so arrogant about their eternal destinies. I pray, God, that you would bring them to you so that they might reap the same rewards that I will reap someday that I also don't deserve. Lord, I thank you for what you've said in this series. I thank you for the hope that you give us despite all of the bad, all of the, uh, the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the immorality and the evil and the tragedy that we see so often. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.